Anthony Fasano from the Engineering Management Institute here. And before we bring you this episode of the podcast, we want to let you know that like many people, the team here at EMI is concerned about the COVID-19 coronavirus. While there are many reputable news and medical sources out there to help you stay informed, here at EMI, we'd like to use our platform to keep you up to date on any news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on. We will be posting this information as we receive it at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash COVID-19. Again, that's engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash C-O-V-I-D-1-9. Stay informed and stay safe. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll be talking once again to Stan Caldwell, who provides structural engineering consultation primarily with respect to construction litigation. This is the second of a two-episode series. In the previous episode, episode 20, Stan provided five tips for young structural engineers. And in this episode, Stan will focus on five tips for structural engineering managers. I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas, and I graduated with a bachelor's in civil engineering from UT Austin. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager for chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. And I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed professional engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC San Diego. I'd just like to make a quick announcement regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus. The Engineering Management Institute know that there are many reputable news and medical sources out there to help you stay informed. However, EMI would like to use our platform to keep you up to date on any COVID-19 news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on. You can find this information at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org backslash COVID-19 or engineeringmanagementinstitute.org backslash C-O-V-I-D-1-9. All right, we received some really good feedback on Stan's first episode, so we're excited to talk with him again. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Stan Caldwell. Stan Caldwell currently provides structural engineering services as a sole proprietor in Plano, Texas. His focus is on construction litigation, working primarily as a consultant to defense attorneys. After earning his bachelor's and master's in civil engineering degrees at University of Wisconsin-Madison, he has gained 49 years of experience in the analysis, design, and management of more than 800 projects, including buildings, bridges, and specialty structures. The buildings range from 1,000 square feet to a million square feet, and the bridges range from 100 feet to 22,000 feet. Beyond the workplace, he has served as a leader with SEAT, ACEC, and TBPE in Texas, and with ASCE, SEI, AEI, SECB, and NCSEA nationally. Stan is the king of alphabet soup. That's an impressive lineup, I would say. Quite the resume, and we're glad to have him back again. We mentioned that in this episode, Stan will provide five tips for engineering managers. These tips include, number one, swim upstream. Number two, stay in your lane. Number three, embrace construction. Four, cherish your people. And five, make a profit. Let's jump into today's conversation with Stan Caldwell. 
Now we'd like to welcome Stan Caldwell, Structural Engineering Consultant. Stan, welcome back to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Thank you. Stan, we introduced you earlier on the show and on the previous episode where you talked about five tips for structural engineers. But in your own words, uh, for those who might not have watched that episode, could you provide a short recap of what you do on a daily basis? I, in episode uh, podcast 20, started out with a fairly extensive review of my uh, experience as an engineer. And I'd prefer not to reiterate that. What I would say for the purposes of this podcast is that I began managing structural engineers in 1973, which was two years out of college. And then I proceeded to manage structural engineers for the next 40 years through 2013. And I did that in a range of settings, uh, starting with project manager for a very large oil and gas company, then as branch manager for a nationwide structural engineering analysis company, then as founder and president of a structural engineering design company, and finally as vice president and chief structural engineer of a very large regional multidiscipline engineering company. I never received any management training of substance. And so I will freely admit that my managerial style and managerial techniques were developed largely through trial and error. Now, there's an old saying that you always learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. To the extent that that might be true, then I surely must be an expert structural engineering manager because I've made more than my share of mistakes. But along the way, I have certainly learned, if nothing else, I have learned what works well and what does not. We all need a reminder that it's okay to fail and that we should actually embrace failure so long as we take the time to reflect and use that failure to be better in the future. So thank you for those words of wisdom. I think that's always a healthy reminder for all of us. Stan, you mentioned in our prior episode, uh, the first of this two-part series, that you had five tips for young engineers, and these tips were created organically through others asking for your guidance to these young engineers. What led to the development of this sister article that you wrote for Structures Magazine that was in the, I believe, the June 2016 issue, your top five tips for engineering managers? How did you get those? That's really quite simple. Uh, Structure Magazine had approached me and asked me to write an article with advice for young structural engineers, and I agreed to do that. As I began gathering my thoughts on advice for young structural engineers, my mind wandered, and I began thinking about advice for their managers. And so instead of writing the one article that was requested, I ended up writing two companion articles, which were published back-to-back in the summer of 2016. The first article was Five Tips for Young Engineers, and that became the subject for podcast number 20. The accompanying article was Five Tips for Engineering Managers, which is the subject matter for the podcast today. Did you intend for each of those five tips for the two different audiences to kind of complement one another? Is there a complimentary tip for engineering managers that kind of works from or complements one of the tips for young engineers? To be honest, they're not parallel. 
what I concluded, I certainly thought about that as all of this developed, but the reality is the advice that I wanted to give young engineers was quite different than the advice that I wanted to give their managers. Managing is different than engineering. So let's jump into the five tips for structural engineering managers. The first is swim upstream. Can you explain that a little bit more? More than 100 years ago, the structural engineering profession was dominated by master builders like Eiffel and Roebling and many others, whose names we still know and revere today. Those engineers conceived their projects, promoted their projects, obtained funding for their projects, designed their projects, obviously, but also constructed their projects or directly supervised the construction of their projects. Now compare that with today. Over the last many decades, structural engineers have gradually moved down the food chain, far removed from the days of the master builders. Whether self-imposed to reduce liability, for example, constraining scope as a method of constraining liability exposure, or whether simply shoved aside by more ambitious professionals, many structural engineers today find themselves in unfortunate circumstances. Let me give an example. On any typical building project, MEP engineers, and that by that I of course mean mechanical electrical plumbing, MEP engineers typically receive higher fees than structural engineers, even though they provide substantially less effort and they are exposed to substantially less risk. That just isn't fair, but it is the life that we lead. Architects and civil engineers are almost always the prime professionals on building and bridge projects, respectively. And unfortunately, they frequently select structural engineers based almost exclusively on price. And they often neglect to include structural engineers in the most critical conceptual phases of their projects when the important decisions are being made. And then last but not least, they're more than happy to pass as long, along as much of the liability exposure as, as possible. That doesn't seem to bother them. So this is a untenable situation. So what can be done? Well, the most effective remedy for this situation is to proactively steer your structural engineering firm upstream. Structural engineers are not prohibited from acting as the prime professional on any project. And some firms are seizing that opportunity. I first had that opportunity in 1990 when I was able to sell the renovation and expansion of the Cotton Bowl Stadium for the 1994 World Cup soccer tournament to the city of Dallas. And in the process of doing that, I negotiated nearly a 20% of construction cost fee on what was a very large project. And then I turned around and subcontracted the architecture to a well-known sports architect firm up in Kansas City. The project went very well. It was completed on schedule, on budget. The soccer tournament events there were successful. If you go to the Cotton Bowl today, you'll see the typical brass plaque at the main entrance. And on that brass plaque, it lists the mayor and it lists all of the council people at that point in time. It lists the engineer record for the project and it lists the contract. There's no mention of the architect. Now, this is sort of like comparing color television to black and white TV. Once you've tasted life as prime professional, you don't ever want to go back. 
and I've did my best to never go back. Yeah, you know, once you work as a prime professional, you realize that that's really a far better world than working as a sub consultant. So my advice to all structural engineering firms is to strive to work directly for project owners whenever possible and to earn a seat at the quote-unquote big table where the earliest and most important project decisions are made. Remember, other parties, and by other parties, of course, I mean architects and civil engineers, can only maintain your inferiority with your consent. Don't give your consent. Be a prime professional. So, Stan, how do you recommend, what is kind of the first step for someone who hasn't ever gone for prime before? What is that first step they can take to get them closer to achieving that? First step is you have to look for the opportunity. They're not necessarily going to appear at your doorstep. You need to go out and find them. Through your relationships, you will eventually find a client who has a high enough regard for you that they'll consider making you a prime on a project. My first one happened to be a very, very large one, but uh, this will work the same way on a small project. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the architect being a subconsultant to the structural engineer. As a result of the Cotton Bowl project, I got tired of supervising that uppity architect in Kansas City, and so I hired the first architect at Half Associates to act as an intermediary, and that became the start of Half's in-house architecture department which for the first few years was within the structural department. The architects worked for the structural engineers. And of course, that's what I think God intended originally. I work with a lot of buildings and structural engineers are under the architect, but we do have projects where we do are the direct uh, contact or the, the prime consultant with the owner. And yeah, pretty much it's kind of like a design build where a lot of the constructability issues are solved up front because we have that input and we have that direction. I think it's more efficient and more practical when structural engineers do that way. And like you said, once you kind of go that way, you don't want to go back. So Stan, your second tip for engineering managers is to stay in your lane. What do you mean by that? As you know, Alexis, in Texas, we have only generic PE licensure. And in fact, most jurisdictions in the country offer only generic PE licensure, which allows an engineer to practice in any area where they themselves feel that they are competent to practice. Now, this has resulted in structures designed by civil engineers, mechanical engineers, by electrical engineers, aerospace engineers, and many others. I've been uh, a witness to several of those, and I can tell you that most structures that are not designed by structural engineers end up to be fiascos. But some structural engineers also occasionally stray out of bounds. And when any engineer practices outside their area or areas of competence, the results are often disastrous. Now, let me give you a particularly egregious example that I was involved in. This was a mid-rise luxury condominium tower overlooking a prestigious golf course in East Texas. In this case, the structural engineer, who will go unnamed, had a career owning a small building design firm, never larger than a half dozen people, that specialized in mid-rise, post-tension, flat plate, concrete buildings. Well, now he was approaching retirement, and he wanted to go out 
with a bang. He, he wanted to leave a legacy. So he conceived of this project. And although his entire career had been as a structural engineer and the owner of a small structural engineering design firm, he decided that on this particular project, since it would be his last, and in fact, it was his last, he would also act personally as the civil engineer, as the mechanical engineer, as the electrical engineer, and as the plumbing engineer. Not only that, he engaged a sole practitioner architect, provided office space for him, hovered over his shoulder, and overruled much of the architectural design, including during the construction. And speaking of the construction, this structural engineer also started a construction company from scratch specifically to build the project and a testing laboratory to assure the quality of that construction. And he got away with all of this because, in addition, he served as the managing partner of the developer. This is the only time in my career that I reviewed a construction contract that was signed by the same individual as the contractor and as the developer. That project was completed in 2008. It was 14-story condominium over a three-story podium parking garage. As you might imagine, the project encountered multiple problems right from the get-go. When it first opened, a number of people bought condominiums at prices ranging from $1 million to $2 million, depending on size and location and view. And then almost immediately, they began suing. Just to cite one problem, the, the building was clad all the way to the top in travertine tile. Travertine is a beautiful rock highly polished, imported from Italy. Unfortunately, it's porous. Water goes through it. And uh, so it fell off the building. And these tiles were typically 13 pounds apiece, and they were falling 140 feet. And that's just one of a uh, litany of problems. I could go on all day with the problems that project had. The litigation went on for eight years with more than $12 million in claims. There were no winners. The engineer, the contractor, and the developer all ended up declaring bankruptcy. The project was sold on the courthouse steps for pennies on the dollar, and those early buyers were aghast to discover that their new neighbors had purchased similar condominium units in their building for $100,000 to $200,000. I encourage all structural engineering firms to be entrepreneurial, but only if you stay within your areas of competence or if you add new competencies through education, through experience, through acquisition, or through key hiring. That's a pretty crazy story on like uh, an engineer taking on all that and even the developer construction. That's definitely something to stay in your lane about because not just that, but it's all the liability. Like you said, it just seems like you're taking liability for pretty much everything on that. So that's definitely great advice if you're not sure on something definitely stay in your lane and always ask yourself if you're qualified to design those projects. Stan, your third tip for engineering managers is to embrace construction. Why should structural engineering managers embrace construction? Could you go into more detail about that? It's my perspective that most projects, the structural engineering firm discovers that they have exhausted their budget just about the time construction commences. And so Far too often, they try and remedy that by minimizing their costs during construction. They'll do the shop drawings, presumably, but when it comes to the field visits, they're tempted to send 
they're less experienced, less expensive personnel because the budget has been blown. This is absolutely the wrong approach. It is during the construction that a structural engineering firm has its highest risk. There are more disputes that arise during construction than after completion and operation of the project. And if the construction is deficient for any reason at all, even if it has nothing to do with the design, the structural engineer will most likely be a party to any subsequent litigation. My advice is structural engineers should only accept assignments that include full construction administration services, insist on being paid for site visits, and regularly visit the job site with experienced personnel to ensure that your design intent is actually being achieved. Now, on a related topic, structural engineers are increasingly being asked to certify the construction of their projects, and they often get themselves into trouble by doing so. Now, certifying your design, for example, certifying that your design meets all applicable building codes and standards, that's one thing. Certifying the construction and the adequacy of the construction, that's something entirely different. I had a project on the Texas Gulf Coast many years ago, and it was a regional shopping mall. At the time, my firm had designed several regional shopping malls for the largest developer of shopping malls in the United States. And this was our fourth or fifth shopping mall with that developer. And with the architect who was local, we were a team. On this particular project, we got done, it was again, 400 miles or so from our office. So during the construction of that project, we made probably six or eight site visits, which required airplane travel and so forth. And a typical time on the ground, we always sent our design engineer, practice or breach, but our design engineer would spend the day, but he'd probably be only on site for maybe four hours. And he'd see whatever there was to be seen. And more often than not, he was down there to solve some specific problem because something had gotten screwed up during construction and needed to be improvised. Therefore, we had our engineer on the site. The project got done. Next thing we know, we get a demand letter from the developer stating that uh, we had to sign the attached form, which is a certification that all of the construction was totally acceptable and, and met code and so forth. And we politely declined to do that. But then we got a rather rude letter saying if we did not sign that certificate certification, we would never work for that developer again. And once again, we declined to sign that certification. And lo and behold, we never worked for that developer again. But we did the right thing. Never certify any construction unless a member of your firm provided observation of that construction. More specifically, certify only that which you or your staff personally have observed and know to be fact. I really appreciate that last sentiment. I think, you know, of course, we all have a code of ethics that we adhere to, and it's difficult to balance that code of ethics when we have business priorities to attend to. And of course, we want to keep as many people happy on the job site, but the ultimate purpose that we serve is to make sure that the people who are using the building are safe and that that it supersedes anyone's happiness. I've had several situations when I was a field engineer in the taking care of my territory for Hilti, in which I was called out by an inspector or an installer saying, hey, can you come and tell, can you write me a letter for the EOR or someone else kind of trying to persuade me that I should 
put my neck out on the line to certify that they've done something correctly or installed an anchor correctly when I wasn't even on site. And we need to remember that our duty is to the public and not to the contractor. And that can be difficult when kind of going back to your earlier point, we're not in a position of authority on the job site and we're maybe not seen as the prime or someone who's responsibility is greater than that to the person who's building things to the GC. Stan, your fourth tip for structural engineering managers is to cherish your people. I think that's probably very timely given the circumstances we find ourselves in trying to navigate, you know, digital and virtual work environments and make sure that our neighbors and our colleagues and our family are all safe and healthy. Why specifically do you advocate that structural engineering managers should champion this idea of cherishing their people? Once again, I'd like to uh, start with a personal anecdote. I started a structural engineering building design firm from scratch in 1982 in Dallas. At that time, I did not know any architects. I did not know any building design engineers. And the last time that I myself had designed a building was summer jobs in college 12 years prior. So I felt that I needed to have an edge if I was going to succeed. And I decided that my edge would be technology. So I spent $25,000 to buy the complete suite of Micus structural engineering software, which at the time was absolutely the state of the art. And I spent another $25,000 for a Wang 2200 computer to run it. So that was a $50,000 bet to get an edge in starting my firm. As things turned out, I eventually got to know the other structural engineers in Dallas, and I discovered that all of the structural engineering firms had equivalent software, either proprietary or the MICA system I had, or other commercial systems that were coming online. Everybody had essentially equivalent technology. And then about three years later, the world shifted to IBM PC computers, and my Wang 2200 ended up to be a very expensive coffee table in my reception area. Nevertheless, my firm, in fact, succeeded and and thrived because of the people that I hired. And here's my point. Very few structural engineering firms enjoy truly unique technology, such as proprietary software, or truly unique facilities, such as in-house laboratories, or other resources that they might consider to be truly unique. The only long-term competitive edge that any structural engineering firm has is its people. So hire only the best and the brightest. Place them in a professional environment with clear office policies, effective collaboration, first-rate technology, meaningful mentoring, real opportunities for training, and exposure to the profession beyond the workplace. Then challenge those employees with diverse projects and a bit more responsibility than you think that they can handle. Now, correct their errors and shortcomings, but also reward their accomplishments with timely bonuses and recognition, particularly recognition. That is more important than bonuses. Promote based on merit alone and let the cream rise to the top, regardless of seniority. And most important of all, listen intently to your employees' thoughts and concerns, and then act on what you hear. With the right people in the right environment, your firm is sure to prosper. That's a great tip, Stan. I know a lot of engineers, especially coming out of school, they ask a lot about what software should I learn? 
or what programs do I need to learn and whatnot. And, you know, rightfully so coming out of school, you think it's all technical, but as you do get to more of the, the management part of it, that's where the technical skills like you saw and the software, it's pretty much everywhere. And what really separates the, the good managers is kind of like what you're saying, hiring the right people that they have a good team even those soft skills, like you're saying, like recognizing people and whatnot, that's something that, like you said, structural engineers should really strive for because that will set them apart from the competition. And if they take care of their people, they'll take care of them back. So I really like that one. Stan, your last of the five tips for engineering managers is to make a profit. Uh, could you go into that? It might seem obvious, at least to the casual observer, that all structural engineers should make a profit. But it's become obvious to me that there are a lot of firms that don't get it. Many structural engineering firms never decline a project, regardless of the fee, the scope, the schedule, or the reputation of the client. They simply accept whatever project comes their way, no filters at all. Other structural engineering firms gladly accept whatever fee is offered. Essentially, they are agreeing that the client knows more of their cost of business than they do themselves. It's just disgusting. And yet other structural engineering firms, and I've seen this a lot and it's really distressing, are content to work on handshake agreements without any written documentation whatsoever. In doing so, all of these firms set the bar way too low and they damage the profession as a whole. Although engineering managers might be reluctant to admit it, their firms exist to make a profit. Structural engineering managers are running a business, not a practice. And there is a, a distinct difference. Accordingly, without compromising their integrity or their professionalism, structural engineering managers should strive to make a profit on each and every project. That means rigorous job cost accounting. And that means that you're going to find some clients or project types that you need to say goodbye to. Insist on written agreements on every project that adequately define your scope, schedule, and fee. Fulfill your commitments and never hesitate to demand additional fees whenever your scope grows or additional services are requested. In other words, proactively prevent scope creep. Profitable firms are healthy firms, but they are maintained only through a sharp and persistent focus. I really appreciate that sentiment. I actually have sat in and been lucky enough to hear a lot of the conversations at some of the national conferences about how we can, as a profession, better position ourselves as leaders and better business people, and that we should not be undercutting our proposals when we are bidding on jobs. I guess my question to you is, one of the reasons that structural engineers, when they are bidding for a project, are selected is because they have one of the lower bids. How do we, as a society, as a community, help increase, provide ourselves the opportunity to create a better profit for our internal team by working with other firms to ensure that all of our bids are at a higher level to where we can successfully generate that profit. How can we work together to make that happen? My most fundamental advice is stop bidding. I concluded way back when I had my building design firm in the 1980s that uh, I would not be a commodity. And I just 
began declining every opportunity I had to submit a fee proposal or a bid. I didn't want to be selected directly or indirectly based upon price. And the easiest way to do that is stop submitting bids. And uh, I wanted to be selected because people appreciated what I had to offer, basically the value that I and my staff brought to their project. And it takes discipline. I mean, again, I uh, lost a bunch of client relationships in that process, but it was kind of like the process to work as a prime instead of as a sub. And once you go that route, there's no going back. It's a much better world. There will always be bottom feeders. There always will be. Firms that are willing to work for less price, they may or may not do an adequate job, but you don't want to be competing with those firms, for, in part because you don't want to work for the clients that they're willing to work for. Clients that are adamant that they want the lowest fee are typically not clients that I would ever want to work for. We don't do that. And that, that was my approach. And you've got to uh, take your medicine in that process because you will lose some business when you stop bidding, if you would or submitting fee proposals, which is a more polite word for bidding. But if instead you replace it with uh, higher profile clients that appreciate you based upon the value that you bring, you'll have a much better life and you'll be more profitable and you'll be happier. If you value yourself and what you do as a profession and your services, and you work for a client that doesn't choose you out of lowest bid, but chooses you because they know the value that you bring, I think that's mindset. You do want to work with people that value you, not just because you're like exactly what you said, Stan, a commodity. And if you are doing like the lowest, lowest, lowest bid, and yeah, you are positioning yourself as a commodity. So that's a great insight. Did you have something to add to that? I uh, bid my last project in, I think, 1985. And when I, or 85 or 86, one or the other. And when I did that, I never looked back. I believe that you should uh, look to build your business based upon relationships. And if you do that properly, your projects will be based upon capabilities, not based upon price. Stan, thank you for coming on and sharing these five tips for engineering managers. I definitely learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners, uh, it'll help them too. My pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 23, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode, including both Structure Magazine articles that Stan Caldwell authored, as well as Stan's LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to find any COVID-19 coronavirus news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org slash COVID-19. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. <laughs>